0: Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhart. Hello, and thank you for listening. We'd also like to thank you for your reviews and your ratings and referrals to friends. And when making new friends, always introduce yourself as a Next Track podcast listener, which will surely ignite instant camaraderie. This is episode number 35 of The Next Track, and we are delighted to have as our guest Peter Chilvers. Peter is a musician and software developer of several well-known generative music apps, which is our focus today. Peter, it's great to have you with us. Hello. Thank you. We wanted to get Peter on the show mainly because
1: he's the author of an extremely interesting new app, which features Brian Eno's latest composition, Reflection. Peter, you've been working with Brian Eno now for about 10 years, haven't you? Developing apps and doing other things yes that's right what 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 exactly
2: do you do? I look after well the apps are the main side of what I do so um that includes so all the iPhone apps basically bloom scape trope uh, reflection um and um The rest of the time, I just do pretty much anything that involves a computer with him. So that's normally the audio side, but it can be anything from really mundane stuff like sort of fixing his email or trying to to um, archiving, basically, sometimes just trying to trace down where a particular track has gone Um, and then more recently it's developed into other things like on the ship I was playing keyboards doing some production for the first time um kind of almost by accident really I I mostly I do the more technical side with Brian except for the
1: apps so you tune his computers the way a guitar technician would tune um (laughs) Keith
2: Richards guitars kind of thing (laughs) yeah sort of yes
0: (laughs) you're Brian Eno's IT guy yeah (laughs) That's pretty much it, actually, yes. <laughs> yeah, but it's a lot more than
2: that. <laughs> yeah.
1: Brian's been using computers for a very long time. I mean, if you go back to Roxy Music, the, the early synthesizers you were using were technically computers, weren't they?
2: Yes, I guess so. It's um, Yeah, which uh, <laughs> I, I think I was still in nappies at that point. So you've
1: been working with Brian for 10 years, and you mentioned these other apps, Bloom, Scape, and Trope. I got in touch with you a few years ago when I reviewed them for Macworld. There's a big difference between those three apps and reflection talk about the older apps first and then we'll discuss what's so different about reflection
2: okay well bloom was the very first one we did and it um, we actually started working on it before um, the iPhone had even been announced actually so it was an experiment just creating little dots that expanded out on the screen and played a note so um, and then that repeated and it was it was kind of a really just a tech demo I had that Brian sort of said oh can you do this on it and then I changed it and then I suggested things and he suggested things but really the only way to it just wasn't very satisfying with a mouse on the screen Um, Brian had a Wacom tablet he uses for his artwork and so we tried it with that and that was really nice but then we kind of thought well this is all very well but how do we release this it's just not there wasn't really um, a platform for it and then uh, the iPhone came out, and we thought, "Oh yes!" And then about another year later, the App Store came out. And um, so,
1: coincidentally, we're recording this on the ninth of January, which is the tenth anniversary of the introduction of the iPhone. Yes, you're right. Yes, indeed. Oh, good, good timing then. So, Bloom, I, I guess yeah. you could call it a sort of musical sandbox.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's very simple. I mean, it, I mean, a harsh description would be like it's sort of an electronic wind chimes, but actually, there's a lot more to it. It's it's kind of um it's very hard to classify because it's not really a composition in that it requires input from the user but really whatever the user does is going to actually still it's still going to sound like bloom so it's i think the closest um comparison it's more like a kinetic sculpture actually it's so you can it's a created piece but you can go up interact with it and shape it and there was something very nice in that in the way that um Someone with no skill whatsoever musically could still actually engage with it and feel, I think, what it, improvising musicians feel like. It's um, You can actually feel, "Ooh, I did that. I, I, I made something happen. And so you're both shaping it and at the same time you're constrained to a particular sort of um, a particular soundscape.
1: So I'll put a link in the show notes to generativemusic.com, which is your website that presents all of these apps. Yes. The GenerativeMusic.com is the name of your company. Is it Opal Records? Because it's the site you go to when you click on the Opal Limited link on the iTunes store for the Reflection app. Yes. Um, but no, there's nothing about Reflection there. Yeah, no, that would be down to the uh, web designer, which would be me again,
2: who um, really ought to catch up So it's your website. It's not yeah. It's not the record company's website? No, it's mine. It is. Um, I've discovered the name was free about... God knows, it's probably about 15 years ago. And so initially I just had a load of um, um, generative music experiments on there. And by chance, um, a friend of mine knew Brian and um, introduced me and I sent him a link to one of my experiments. He said, oh, that's interesting. Come down to my studio. So um, um, <laughs> we, by chance, he was um, working on Spore, the computer game at the time, and uh, wanted someone to help him out with that. So um, I kind of stayed, basically. <laughs> So basically, you reserved a domain name, and
1: that's how you met Brian Eno and started working with him. I think that's just wonderful.
2: Yeah, it was It was kind of a... There's a little bit more to it than that, but it was, yeah, basically, it, if I hadn't done that, that wouldn't have happened. So. so tell us about the other apps, Scape and Trope. How are they different? Well, Trope was the next one, and that was about... i trying to think. We started on that one a few months, I think, after we'd finished Bloom. Um, and that came more from an idea of Brian's. So, um said bloom was more of a tech demo i presented to brian and then he tweaked and we changed with trope came first from him that you wanted something that instead of tapping and getting dots we wanted to trace lines um the original idea was far more complex actually it's one of those cases where what we set out to do and what we ended up doing are completely different things. so um, um i think the original thing involved blending four different samples and looping between them um and um yeah it just was nothing like that in the end what we tend to find is um you start a project thinking well i'll put give all this control so when you move the your finger around the screen it will change this vector and this factor and this factor and so on and what you discover is you just get chaos when you do that so you start having to constrain and constrain and constrain and um so in the end it it was very simple what you could do was pitch going up and down and you didn't I think one of the earlier versions, you could change pitch when you moved up and down the screen and you just got this annoying sort of whew, noise. It was not something you would listen to. Kind of like a theremin. Yeah. So imagine lots and lots of theremins <laughs> looping back at you and it's, I'm not saying it's not an interesting sound, but it's just not something you... Well, it's, it's, it's interesting once, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> it's not something you'd want to do a lot. So the whole thing with trope simplified drastically, but it, um, that took quite a while. So it was another year, I think, before trope came out. Um, Um, and then scape scape was a much more complex thing altogether um that it's a it's a hard one to classify scape because it kind of gets wrongly described as a composition tool and it's not really it's it's more like sort of putting you in charge of um a whole library of improvising musicians albeit very (laughs) very limited and very stupid musicians but musicians nonetheless so it's A bit like if you said, okay, well, I want you, you, you and you sit in a room with your instruments and play. And then you'll think five minutes in, okay, he can go and I'll bring this one in. Except instead of musicians, we've got little abstract sort of geometric shapes. Um, But they were all basically quite quite complex little entities. They they had a set of rules. So some of them would have personalities like they'd be shy or they'd be aggressive. So you have bell sounds where whenever a bell sounds, I think almost everything else around it shuts up completely. Then you have other sort of pad sounds when, when they play they all only play when other things aren't playing, so they can, might be more shy. Um it's a whole weird
0: mix and um how did you go about determining the rules and and how the different instruments would obey or not obey or conform to a rule? Did you have to experiment with what worked under different conditions? Or? I think we kind of winged it a bit, really. Um, it was,
2: it was a case of I had lots of ideas. I think because I'm, because I'm mainly, I suppose, first computer generator, a computer programmer. Sorry, I often think of things in terms of the architecture behind um, software. So I had. I ended up developing all these immense amounts of possibilities for how the graphics could change, how the sounds could change, all the personalities, all the rules, without necessarily thinking of what rules we'd want to actually apply. So having done them, we kind of threw a bunch of those in, thought, well, we could do all these things. So some of them had rules like only play if nothing's playing at a higher pitch than me or don't play if this note's already playing. Um, And yeah, it's kind of a bit of experimentation. You just try them around and think, yeah, actually that works. And what's interesting is you get I think music that no human would make um, quite a while ago, I recorded a huge number of these about sort of eight hours worth and um, put them all into Brian's iTunes um, on his computer. So you just listen to them at random and you come across things. You think how on earth did that exist? It's just, they're very odd little landscapes, but they're it's a very odd form of music. It's um, I, the thing I think, we're always aiming for with generative music is to create something that can surprise us and I think Scape's done that more than any of the other packages actually it's it does some very odd things sometimes and I I enjoy coming back to it when I'm not remembering that I'm the developer on it (laughs) so so let's get a definition here
1: of what generative music is because we're going to talk about reflection in a minute and you've talked about it with these different apps what exactly is generative music for people listening who don't know this term
2: God, this is where I need Brian to phone in suddenly. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, I think it's music that keeps generating itself. So whereas conventional compositions might play from a start to a finish, generative music typically will reassemble itself according to rules. And there's often a quite heavy either chance or circumstantial element to it. Um, So Bloom would be an example where the chance element is really the human interacting with it so there's very defined rules about what sound can play how they can loop back but um the user really is generating some degree of chaos into that um and with scape the user is kind of curating what comes out of it as well but yeah it's it's something western musical notation doesn't really account for very well the idea of having something in a score that might say play this now but If it's dark, don't play this. Play this if you've heard someone else do that.
1: Um, Well, I guess if you look back at like Terry Riley's in C, you've got, I'm trying to remember how many is it, 57, 75 little melodic fragments, and each musician plays each one as long as he wants until he gets tired of it. Yes. But there is still that order that you play them in order. Yes. If you look at some of John Cage's compositions, they do allow the musicians to play what they want when they want. Mm. But it seems to me that generative music is more of an algorithm-based system, in the sense that you're setting up a number of conditions, and then when certain things happen, certain under- other things happen.
2: Yes. I and mean, it, it doesn't have to be random, actually. Um, it just often ends up being random. But um, So Brian
1: Enos has described discrete music as his first generative music composition, or at least the first that he recorded. And if I understand correctly, the, the real generation there was simply questions of timing between tape loops and delays and echoes and things like that. Is that correct? Um, I know you were in nappies
2: when that yes, was recorded. Yes, I think so. Well, yes. <laughs> well, maybe I just got out of them by then. What was it, 77? 75. 75. Hopefully I was out of them by then, actually. <laughs> but, uh, um, yes, I think what's what's been interesting, actually, working with Brian is, the, is seeing the solutions he's come up with without being a programmer to create generative systems. So tape loops are being a great example, actually. Um, and later CDs all playing together. Um, I'm trying to think what some of the other things he's done to achieve that. That's been his main sort of technique. Whereas for me, as a programmer, I, I can think of things in terms of, okay, play this note, and if you played it twice, don't play this note. I can be much more precisely rule-based because I'm working with something that can hopefully obey my rules. Um, whereas a CD player is rather limited in terms of... Um, how it can actually uh, respond to your uh, demands. Well that, that brings us to Reflection and, th- and that's a very
1: good comment you just made that the CD player is limited so in, in the notes for the CD version of Reflections, Eno points out that he intended this music to be like a river that goes on and you sort of step into the river and you listen to it for a while and then you step out and that it keeps changing a bit like Heraclitus said, you know, you're never in the same river twice. Oh is that where that
2: quote comes from? I've- yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's an early review of Bloom, someone I think from One had used that that quote and I've always thought that summed it up perfectly but I never knew where it came from All right. so
1: reflection is a generative piece were, were you involved in the structure let's we're just going to talk about the cd now we'll talk about the app in a second were you involved in developing whatever technology was necessary for the recording itself
2: or or did that recording come from the app um no it was it, the my involvement with the album version was actually um a complete surprise to me in fact because um i did develop the technology behind it but then i didn't really think anything more about it and um it was only when brian was close to releasing the app he said what credit would you like and i thought oh um i i hadn't really occurred to me that he was using it so it's some i'm not sure i want to go into too much detail as to what i did for that but um at the moment but um I'm fine to talk about a bit of it, just not all of it. Um, Which came first, the album or the app? The album. So um, And so I think Brian had already, he hadn't finished the album, but he'd done several different, in quotes, finished versions of it um, at the point when he said, I think this would make a good app um, and suggested I wrote it. So um, I then basically took the piece, which was in Logic, but using some of these more sort of generative technologies I've created as well. So it was... um, working with that and then I had to reverse engineer the piece basically and work out how it was done what effects chains were in there because there's some quite complex feedback loops in there and then I spent some time pulling it apart and then putting it together again until we got to a point where we're playing it back where Brian couldn't tell the difference which was quite a nice moment it's uh um, So, so you're saying the original piece was just a composition in logic it was but it used some technology which i'll be a little bit quiet about at the moment but that that added a bit more chaos to it proprietary technology indeed (laughs) this is which added a little bit of spice to it yeah and so i think it was the first time that brown had been able to write one of these sort of discrete pieces um that had a more rule-based element to it so i think initially i hadn't occurred to me why he wanted to make this particular piece an app and it was only afterwards I thought, oh, it's because this is the first time he could really do some of these things in it. Um so suddenly this technology that I think probably he could have easily used twenty years ago or or thirty, forty years ago if it had existed, I think um I think it was the kind of thing he was um he was just waiting for. Yes.
1: <laughs> so let let's talk about it now. So Reflection is available on CD. There's also a vinyl version. It's 54 minutes long. And what it is, is it's a slice of this generative music. It's a 54-minute segment of music. For collectors out there, there are also 500 unique CDs where, I guess, Brian Eno played another 54 minutes in Logic on his
2: computer and dumped it to a CD 500 times? No, that's what we thought of doing initially, but that's where the... It's kind of a spin-off of the app, the same algorithm that went into the app also went in to um, generate these CDs, which um, uh, (laughs) took some time to run, but it was a lot easier than pressing bounce 500 times, which I think we realized would go mad. (laughs) So there are are 500 signed
1: copies of this CD available. They're all sold out. You might find one on what they call the secondary market. And then we get to the app. So it's an iOS app for iPhone and iPad. Basically, what it does is it Turns on that river; it opens the dam, if I could use another water-based metaphor, and it allows the listener to tap that single play button and have this piece of music going on as long as they want.
2: Yes, perfect description. Actually, it's a-
1: thanks. We'll just wrap yep, this show don't need up me here. here. Thank That's you. <laughs> no, um, it, it's a fascinating idea, and I can totally understand when when I saw this announced on on the first of January, I immediately. Having been a, an Eno fan since 1976 or 77 when I first heard Discreet music, I immediately saw the interest in this that you do just have a slice of that river when you've got a CD and that this is endless. And, and I can say, and I think Doug feels the same way because he bought the app as well, that listening to this, it's just, it's a sound world. It's not even a composition. Mm. It's, it's, you've got this world that's changing that changes at different times of day that has different colors and different tones even though it's based on a limited number of I guess
2: samples is that what it is uh yes it is samples um so yeah it's it's only what something like 80 megabytes of samples so um most of those were used to create sampled instruments so which would behave in appropriately instrumentish fashion um yeah so it's actually a very limited amount of material and I I think one of the things that I find interesting about this piece and indeed a lot of Brown's pieces is, um, I think he has a quality that would, um, probably get you fired from most jobs, but he can, um, do the maximum with the minimal amount of material. And I think that's what's so special about this particular piece. It, it was only really after it'd been released and I started listening to it as a listener rather than as a developer that I started to really appreciate what was special about it actually. But I think there is so little going on, but there's just enough. And that, that sweet spot is incredibly important and there's something it's something great, to think, when you're working with something like that. If you just leave it running while you're just either driving or thinking, particularly thinking, which is what Brian really wanted to do with it, I think.
0: It's just the right amount of music to have. It's surprising, at least it's surprising to me, that it's so pleasant to listen to. I've had it on for, I don't know, for an hour or so at a time and I keep anticipating that there's going to be some unpleasant dissonance. There's going to be like a train wreck. And there never is. It, it, just, it just flows so well. Mm. And, and maybe I shouldn't be trying to make so much sense of it and just go with the randomness. Well, there's possibly a little
2: more structure than meets the eye, actually. Because it's going so slowly, it's quite hard to spot. But um, there are a number of sequences just repeating over and over again. But each time they repeat, these rules are just twisting some element of them very slightly. Um, well, one thing I've noticed
1: is, having listened to discrete music for 40 years, I can remember almost all of it mm. as it goes on. It's a half hour, and I remember this bit comes in here and this bit comes in there. And I've listened to Reflection for several hours at a time, just sitting around reading. Mm. And I just can't quite find anything that is the same. And that's the most interesting thing to me, that it is the same, Pre in the pre-Socratic term, it's the same river, but it's mm. not the same. And I keep trying to think, well, I heard something like that. You know, you hear a bell and you hear a, a specific sound and they come back and you hear them and and the one that sounds like the viola and the one that sounds like the cello and, and you hear them, but they're just not in the same place. And my first thought was a bit naive that this is just going to be random. But the more I listened to it, the more it grew on me, that this is the sort of piece of music that you can listen to I'll be exaggerated a bit for the rest of your life, and never hear the same thing twice and yet
2: still feel like you know it every time you listen to it. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's what's been very interesting about Death and Bloom, I'd say particularly that both of them actually they can you can hear almost a completely different section of them, but you'll instantly know it's Bloom or reflection. There's something just very recognizable. Um and um yeah, uh, to come back to the water analogy, I actually think of rain a lot of the time as well, and you can look out and see something that is rain, but actually by the time you've looked out a second later, it's a completely different section of water you're looking at. There's nothing sort of concrete there, but rain actually always has the same sound. It's um, constant this patter or whatever, which is really just, I guess, a frequency of white noise impact, but um, there's something very comforting and familiar there. Um And again, I think that's what's interesting with reflection, that it's just the right amount of familiarity. There's... You, there's never exactly a riff, but there's occasionally this cu- a fast flurry of notes, that ba 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 that will come in occasionally. Except that will change each time you hear it. But there's enough you think, oh, it's that bit. You can kind of latch on to something there.
0: It's funny how your brain is doing that for you. Your brain is looking for patterns. I mean, mm. you hear a pop song and you start listening for the hook and a, a sense of verse and chorus and verse and chorus. And... Well,
1: even in classical music or even even in, in any recorded music, you're hearing the same piece over and over. So every time you listen to discrete music or Thursday after Afternoon or neroli, you're listening to the same piece of music, mm. and here you're expecting to listen to the same piece of music, but it's not. And it's it, conceptually, it's really fascinating. Yes. <laughs> um, now, just just a brief comment. The sort of elephant in the room is the price of the app at forty dollars. This is the most expensive iOS app I've ever bought. I know there are some that are more expensive. We had a brief exchange about this the other day and and, and I think you did justify it in, in a way that I think is, is very valid.
2: There are several reasons for the um, app price really. Mostly it kind of boiled down to us saying this is a piece of art to be valued. Uh, the app is really the deluxe version of the album. It's the version Brian really wanted to release that could be endless. Um, it could only really work as software. Um, I've also long felt that um, apps get strangely devalued you have these things that could be the product of months even years of development then they get sold for a fraction of the cost of a cappuccino so um i think we really wanted to make a statement saying effort has gone into this um this is something worth buying a secondary factor behind the price was that um, it acts as a kind of filter that the people who are going to actually splash out on that are going to be the people who really get what the app is and i think those are the people who are going to get the most out of it that's good it's been a successful bit of salesmanship on my part there then um it's uh <laughs> um i think the main thing um we wanted to get across really is actually that this is a deluxe version of the app i'm uh that this is this is the version of the app that brian really wanted to release it's um it's not constrained by the limitations of um a cd it's we felt this is actually a piece of art we're really proud of um It also has the visual element, which, while simple, I think there's something quite hypnotising about it as well. Um, I've never actually used it enough
1: where I'm staring at the visual. Now, 20-year-old me with chemical um, assistance would find that fascinating, (laughs) but it's like at my age now, staring at something like that doesn't really do it for me. But, yes, it does have a a gradually changing set of visuals where the colours and the contrast and all that change. Yes. But as you say it is a piece of art it's more than just an app it's more than just an album mm. it it is it it is unique yes no one's done this before so you know congratulations on that thank you is this something that we can expect to see more of in the future I mean, had Brian Eno say, "Hey, this is what
2: I should have been doing the whole time instead of these dumb plastic records." <laughs> I think he probably would prefer. I don't know if he would prefer to do this all the time instead of a record. But there's some times where setting something in stone is exactly the right thing to do. It's um, with pop songs, maybe it's better to not suddenly have it go quite so chaotic. But um, um, I'm sure he'll release more in this sort of vein, whether it's as apps or who knows what the future <laughs> will um, will bring. But um, uh, it's a good technology for doing that type of music. And I think it suits it suits particularly Brian well, actually, because I've been wondering why more artists haven't done musical apps. But actually, a lot of the time, an app isn't the appropriate thing for an artist. It just happens that because of Brian's taste in generative music, then that actually fits perfectly. It, it, it works really well for him.
0: Have you given any thought to the possibility of updating the app for instance, well, I don't know what you would do, new samples or different algorithms or whatever.
2: Add add
1: another composition with an in-app purchase, for instance.
0: But I mean, it's an app and it could be updated. And that reminds me that there have been other albums released recently that have been augmented with additional material or remix tracks and what have you. So does this kind of app fall into that category of developing software that could be updated?
2: We can. I'm going to be a little enigmatic about this, but um, I'll just say the words we can. <laughs> it's a. Because it would be interesting if
1: this ended up being a, a framework and that one could buy additional compositions as in-app purchases. So next year he releases another album with totally different tone colours and that you get to choose which one you listen to instead of being limited to just one, as, as opposed to having separate apps, right? Yes. A, a separate app for
2: each piece of music. Yes. Yeah, so I, I think my feeling on something like that would be, it's quite nice to say, this is one artwork. This is what this is. But, um, and whereas as soon as you start, as soon as you start adding in app purchases and things like that, then you start to complicate that because we've, we've kind of thought through this with some of the previous apps like Bloom is, is very simple. I and mean, actually we had quite a lot of requests to add more sounds, let people import their own sounds. We've always kept it to this one, well, three sounds, actually. It's sort of three different sounds, but it's very, very simple, a quite limited set. But it seemed to me that meant you recognised it as Bloom. It wasn't something else. And as soon as you start adding in cowbells or something else, you've, you've got a much more complex but less, much less usable app. So I'm always, as a software designer, trying to f- resist adding an extra feature. Or I'm, I'm very aware that for every feature I add, I add complexity as well. And... um. This one is just so simple. It, it's quite a luxury to do something that people could only listen to and not interact with, actually. There was, it, it's, it's quite liberating from a development point of view. You can actually put much more effort into... Um, Playing exactly what you want, but not having to think. Well, what happens if the user does this? What if they do that? And uh, why would they do that? But they're probably going to want to. Um, you, you have to deal with quite complex Pe- demands. From people users. always want to do something that you don't think of. Yeah. Too, I can
0: tell you as a software developer myself, it would be the ideal app would be one that users do not interact with, <laughs> and the software makes all the decisions. But the, there's just the one button, right? When you have to start making considerations for user input, that's when you start running into trouble. <laughs>
2: I now realize just how lucky I've been to do this project. Actually, <laughs> you you are yeah you are <laughs> because not
1: only is is the concept interesting, but you, you've created some. I mean, it it is unique. No one else has done this. You mentioned earlier other um, artists have done apps. I think Bjork did an app with photos and videos, but all that is is an album in a different wrapper. Yes, what you've got here is a music creation tool. That is never the same, mm. and there's there's no other way right now that you could do this. No, I, 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 well, you could do it on a computer, you could do it with a, uh, on a laptop, on a desktop computer, but there's no other way outside of an app that you could have um, a, a tool like this.
2: No, I think apps were uh, just the perfect place for it because it's it's a device you use for entertainment. So you want headphones, you've got um, you've got headphones, you've got visuals. You're used to interacting with in a way. Because I said when we first looked at Bloom that. It, running it on a PC just didn't seem satisfactory um, and so that's really what we're after but it's there's certain things that you can only do with software and it's been nice to be able to get across this idea that software can be art and it can be non it doesn't have to be interactive to still be art um, I think something I've been looking forward to. Scape kind of hinted at that. I mean, there's a lot of interaction, but ultimately to use it, you had to step back and just listen to it. That's really what you got out of it. It's not an instrument. It's um, something to listen to. And I found with Bloom, actually, that more and more, I wasn't tapping and creating melodies. I was just pressing the listen button, which would go off and generate something for you to listen to itself. Peter Chilvers, we want to thank you very much for joining us on the next track. Indeed. My pleasure. <laughs> thank you very much.
0: It is at this end of the show that we present our next tracks. Kirk? My next track this week is a new album
1: by the Brad Meldow trio. It's called Blues and Ballads. It's an album of covers. Brad Meldow, in both his studio and live recordings, has done original songs that he's written and covers as well. And this has songs like Since I Fell For You, Little Person, And I Love Her, the Beatles song. I've been a fan of Brad Meldow's music for about 15 years since someone I know recommended that I pick up one of his albums to hear his version of Blackbird. And it's just fascinating. He's an extraordinary pianist. He's got an extraordinary range of style and colors. And he can go from the the most concise studio recordings, where everything is balanced, to some pretty crazy improvisations on, on his live albums, 15, 20 minutes long. This is an album that came out a couple months ago, and I only just got around to buying it in part because I managed to score front row tickets to see him in Manchester in March. And I've long wanted to see him perform live with this trio. So I'm very much looking forward to it. So Brad Meldow, Trio Blues and Ballads. What about you, Doug? What are you listening to this week?
0: So my brother called me the other day, and one of the things he said was, have you listened to any Homer and Jethro recently? And I said, why, no. I haven't listened to any Homer and Jethro recently. Homer and Jethro were a country music comedy duo popular in the 50s and 60s who did parodies of contemporary songs in a hillbilly-esque vein. Who Homer and Jethro really were were Henry Haynes and Ken Jethro Burns, guitar and mandolin players, respectively, who originally were into Django-sounding stuff but found fame and fortune with songs like How Much Is That Hound Dog in the Window and Heartbreak Motel and sundry pasquinades of the works of Tennessee Ernie Ford. Uh, Their act was so popular, in fact, and so corny, that they were hired by the Kellogg's Company to hawk their cornflakes with the slogan, Now That's Corny. So anyway, my brother called and reminded me about Homer and Jethro, because we used to listen to Homer and Jethro as a kid. My parents had bought us an album when we were very small, and we used to be very amused by it. So I dug up an old CD I had, Uh, I'm sure it's not as entertaining as it was when I was a little feller, but I am going to give it a shot. My next track is Homer and Jethro, Country Their Way. Now that's corny. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.